0: Chapter 2 of Tarzan and the Ant Men. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Matthew Reese, Cordova, Illinois. Tarzan and the Ant Men by Edgar Rice Burroughs. Chapter 2 three persons stepped from the veranda of lord greystoke's african bungalow and walked slowly toward the gate along a rose-embowered path that swung in a graceful curve through the well-ordered though unpretentious grounds surrounding the ape-man's rambling one-story home there were two men and a woman all in khaki the older man carrying a flyer's helmet and a pair of goggles in one hand he was smiling quietly as he listened to the younger man You wouldn't be doing this now if mother were here," said the latter. She would never permit it. I'm afraid you are right, my son," replied Tarzan. But only this one flight alone, and then I'll promise not to go up again until she returns. You have said yourself that I am an apt pupil, and if you are any sort of an instructor, you should have perfect confidence in me after having said that I was perfectly competent to pilot a ship alone. "'Eh, Miriam, isn't that true?' he demanded of the young woman. She shook her head. "'Like, my dear, I am always afraid for you, Montpère,' she replied. "'You take such risks that one would think you considered yourself immortal. You should be more careful.' The younger man threw his arm about his wife's shoulders. "'Miriam is right,' he said. "'You should be more careful, father.' Tarzan shrugged. "'If you and mother had your way, my nerves and muscles would have atrophied long since. They were given me to use, and I intend using them, with discretion. Doubtless I shall be old and useless soon enough, and long enough, as it is.' A child burst suddenly from the bungalow, pursued by a perspiring governess and raced to Miriam's side. Mother, he cried, Dakido Dakido Let him come along, urged Tarzan. Dare exclaimed the boy, turning triumphantly upon the governess. Dakido do Yok. Out on the level plain, that stretched away from the bungalow to the distant jungle, the verdant masses and deep shadows of which were vaguely discernible to the northwest, Lay a biplane in the shade of which lulled two waziri warriors who had been trained by korak the son of tarzan in the duties of mechanicians and later to pilot the ship themselves a fact that had not been without weight in determining tarzan of the apes to perfect himself in the art of flying since as chief of the waziri it was not meet that the lesser warriors of his tribe should excel him in any particular adjusting his helmet and goggles "'Tarzan climbed into the cockpit. "'Better take me along,' advised Korak. "'Tarzan shook his head, smiling good-naturedly. "'Then one of the boys here,' urged his son. "'You might develop some trouble that would force you to make a landing, "'and if you have no mechanician along to make repairs, "'what are you going to do?' "'Walk,' replied the ape-man. "'Turn her over, Andua,' he directed one of the blacks." A moment later the ship was bumping over the veldt, from which directly it rose in smooth and graceful flight, circled, climbing to a greater altitude, and then sped away in an air line. While on the ground below the six strained their eyes, until the wavering speck that it had dwindled to disappeared entirely from their view. "'Where do you suppose he is going?' asked Miriam. Korak shook his head. He isn't supposed to be going anywhere in particular, he replied, just making his first practice flight alone. But, knowing him as I do, I wouldn't be surprised to learn that he has taken it into his head to fly to London and see Mother." But he never could do it, cried Miriam. No ordinary man could, with no more experience than he has had. But then you will have to admit, Father is no ordinary man for an hour and a half tarzan flew without altering his course and without realizing the flight of time or the great distance he had covered so delighted was he with the ease with which he controlled the ship and so thrilled by this new power that gave him the freedom and mobility of the birds the only denizens of his beloved jungle that he ever had had cause to envy presently ahead he discerned a great basin or what might better be described as a series of basins surrounded by wooded hills, and immediately he recognized to the left of it the winding Ugogo. But the country of the basins was new to him, and he was puzzled. He recognized simultaneously another fact, that he was over a hundred miles from home, and he determined to put back at once. But the mystery of the basins lured him on. He could not bring himself to return home without a closer view of them. Why was it that he had never come upon this country in his many wanderings? Why had he never even heard of it from the natives living within easy access to it? He dropped to a lower level the better to inspect the basins, which now appeared to him as a series of shallow craters of long extinct volcanoes. He saw forests, lakes, and rivers, the very existence of which he had never dreamed and then quite suddenly he discovered a solution of the seeming mystery that there should exist in a country with which he was familiar so large an area of which he had been in total ignorance in common with the natives of the country surrounding it he recognized it now the so-called great thorn forest for years he had been familiar with that impenetrable thicket that was supposed to cover a vast area of territory into which only the smallest of animals might venture and now he saw it was but a relatively narrow fringe, encircling a pleasant, habitable country, but a fringe so cruelly barbed, as to have forever protected the secret that it held from the eyes of man. Tarzan determined to circle this long-hidden land of mystery, before setting the nose of his ship toward home, and, to obtain a closer view, he accordingly dropped nearer the earth. Beneath him was a great forest, and beyond that an open veldt, that ended at the foot of precipitous rocky hills he saw that absorbed as he had been in the strange new country he had permitted the plane to drop too low coincident with the realization and before he could move the control within his hand the ship touched the leafy crown of some old monarch of the jungle veered swung completely around and crashed downward through the foliage amidst the snapping and rending of broken branches and the splintering of its own woodwork just for a second this and then silence along a forest trail slouched a mighty creature manlike in its physical attributes yet vaguely inhuman a great brute that walked erect upon two feet and carried a club in one horny calloused hand its long hair fell unkempt about its shoulders and there was hair upon its chest and a little upon its arms and legs though no more than is found upon many males of civilized races. A strip of hide about its waist supported the ends of a narrow G-string, as well as numerous rawhide strands, to the lower ends of which were fastened round stones from one to two inches in diameter. Close to each stone were attached several small feathers, for the most part of brilliant hues, the strands supporting the stones being fastened to the belt at intervals of one to two inches and the strands themselves being about eighteen inches long, the whole formed a skeleton skirt, fringed with round stones and feathers, that fell almost to the creature's knees. Its large feet were bare, and its white skin tanned to a light brown by exposure to the elements. The illusion of great size was suggested more by the massiveness of the shoulders, and the development of the muscles of the back and arms, than by height, though the creature measured close to six feet. Its face was massive, with a broad nose and a wide, full-lipped mouth, the eyes, of normal size, being set beneath heavy, beetling brows, topped by a wide, low forehead. As it walked it flapped its large, flat ears, and occasionally moved rapidly portions of its skin on various parts of its head and body, to dislodge flies, as you have seen a horse do with the muscles along its sides and flanks. It moved silently dark eyes constantly on the alert, while the flapping ears were often momentarily stilled, as the woman listened for sounds of quarry or foe. She stopped now, her ears bent forward, her nostrils expanded, sniffing the air. Some scent or sound that our dead sensory organs could not have perceived had attracted her attention. Warily she crept forward along the trail until, at a turning, she saw before her a figure lying face downward in the path. It was Tarzan of the apes. Unconscious he lay, while above him the splintered wreckage of his plane was wedged among the branches of the great tree that had caused its downfall. The woman gripped her club more firmly and approached. Her expression reflected the puzzlement the discovery of this strange creature had engendered in her elementary mind. But she evinced no fear. She walked directly to the side of the prostrate man, her club raised to strike, but something stayed her hand. She knelt beside him and fell to examining his clothing. She turned him over on his back, and placed one of her ears above his heart. Then she fumbled with the front of his shirt for a moment, and suddenly taking it in her two mighty hands, tore it apart. Again she listened, her ear this time against his naked flesh she arose and looked about sniffing and listening then she stooped and lifting the body of the ape-man she swung it lightly across one of her broad shoulders and continued along the trail in the direction she had been going the trail winding through the forest broke presently from the leafy shade into an open park-like strip of rolling land that stretched at the foot of rocky hills and, crossing this, disappeared within the entrance of a narrow gorge, eroded by the elements, from the native sandstone, fancifully as the capricious architecture of a dream, among whose grotesque domes and miniature rocks the woman bore her burden. A half-mile from the entrance to the gorge the trail entered a roughly circular amphitheatre, the precipitous walls of which were pierced by numerous cave-mouths, before several of which squatted creatures similar to that which bore Tarzan into this strange, savage environment. As she entered the amphitheatre, all eyes were upon her, for the large, sensitive ears had warned them of her approach long before she had arrived within scope of their vision. Immediately they beheld her and her burden, several of them arose, and came to meet her. All females these, similar in physique and scant garb to the captor of the ape-man, though differing in proportions and physiognomy as do the individuals of all races differ from their fellows they spoke no words nor uttered any sounds nor did she whom they approached as she moved straight along her way which was evidently directed toward one of the cave-mouths but she gripped her bludgeon firmly and swung it to and fro while her eyes beneath their scowling brows kept sullen surveillance upon the every move of her fellows She had approached close to the cave, which was quite evidently her destination, when one of those who followed her darted suddenly forward and clutched at Tarzan. With the quickness of a cat the woman dropped her burden, turned upon the temerarious one, and, swinging her bludgeon with lightning-like celerity, felled her with a heavy blow to the head. And then, standing astride the prostrate Tarzan, she glared about her like a lioness at bay, questioning dumbly who would be next to attempt to wrest her prize from her. But the others slunk back to their caves, leaving the vanquished one lying, unconscious, in the hot sand, and the victor to shoulder her burden undisputed, and continue her way to the cave, where she dumped the ape-man unceremoniously, upon the ground, just within shadow of the entranceway, and, squatting beside him, facing outward that she might not be taken unaware by any of her fellows, she proceeded to examine her find minutely. Tarzan's clothing either piqued her curiosity, or aroused her disgust, for she began almost immediately to divest him of it, and having had no former experience of buttons and buckles, she tore it away by main force. The heavy cordovan boots troubled her for a moment, but finally their seams gave way to her powerful muscles. Only the diamond-studded golden locket that had been his mother's she left untouched upon its golden chain about his neck. For a moment, she sat contemplating him, and then she arose, and tossing him once more to her shoulder, she walked toward the center of the amphitheater, the greater portion of which was covered by low buildings constructed of enormous slabs of stone. Some set on edge to form the walls, while others, lying across these, constituted the roofs. Joined end to end with occasional wings at irregular intervals running out into the amphitheater, they enclosed a rough oval of open ground that formed a large courtyard. The several outer entrances to the buildings were closed with two slabs of stone one of which standing on edge covered the aperture while the other leaning against the first upon the outside held it securely in place against any efforts that might be made to dislodge it from the interior of the building to one of these entrances the woman carried her unconscious captive laid him on the ground removed the slabs that closed the aperture and dragged him into the dim and gloomy interior where she deposited him upon the floor and clapped her palms together sharply three times with the result that there presently slouched into the room six or seven children of both sexes who ranged in age from one year to sixteen or seventeen the very youngest of them walked easily and seemed as fit to care for itself as the young of most lower orders at a similar age the girls even the youngest were armed with clubs but the boys carried no weapons either of offence or defence At sight of them, the woman pointed to Tarzan, struck her head with her clenched fist, and then gestured toward herself, touching her breast several times with a calloused thumb. She made several other motions with her hands, so eloquent of meaning, that one entirely unfamiliar with her sign language could almost guess their purport. Then she turned and left the building, replaced the stones before the entrance, and slouched back to her cave. Passing, apparently without notice— The woman she had recently struck down and who was now rapidly regaining consciousness as she took her seat before her cave mouth her victim suddenly sat erect rubbed her head for a moment and then after looking about dully rose unsteadily to her feet for just an instant she swayed and staggered but presently she mastered herself and with only a glance at the author of her hurt moved off in the direction of her own cave before she had reached it her attention together with that of all the others of this strange community, or at least of all those who were in the open, was attracted by the sound of approaching footsteps. She halted in her tracks, her great ears uppricked, listening. Her eyes directed toward the trail leading up from the valley. The others were similarly watching and listening, and a moment later their vigil was rewarded by sight of another of their kind as she appeared in the entrance to the amphitheatre a huge creature, this, even larger than she who captured the ape-man, broader and heavier, though little, if any, taller, carrying upon one shoulder the carcass of an antelope, and upon the other the body of a creature that might have been half human and half beast, yet, assuredly, not entirely either the one or the other. The antelope was dead, but not so the other creature. It wriggled weakly, its futile movements could not have been termed struggles as it hung, its middle across the bare brown shoulder of its captor, its arms and legs dangling limply before and behind, either in partial unconsciousness or in the paralysis of fear. The woman who had brought Tarzan to the amphitheatre rose and stood before the entrance to her cave. We shall have to call her the first woman, for she had no name. In the muddy convolutions of her sluggish brain she never had sensed even the need for a distinctive specific appellation. And among her fellows she was equally nameless as were they and so that we may differentiate her from the others we shall call her the first woman and similarly we shall know the creature that she felled with her bludgeon as the second woman and she who now entered the amphitheatre with a burden upon each shoulder as the third woman so the first woman rose her eyes fixed upon the newcomer her ears uppricked, and the second woman rose and all the others that were in sight And all stood glaring at the third woman who moved steadily along with her burden, her watchful eyes ever upon the menacing figures of her fellows. She was very large, this third woman, so for a while the others only stood and glared at her. But presently the first woman took a step forward, and, turning, cast a long look at the second woman. And then she took another step forward, and stopped, and looked again at the second woman. And this time she pointed at herself, at the second woman, and then at the third woman who now quickened her pace in the direction of her cave for she understood the menace in the attitude of the first woman the second woman understood too and moved forward now with the first woman no word was spoken no sound issued from those savage lips lips that never had parted to a smile lips that never had known laughter nor ever would as the two approached her the third woman dropped her spoils in a heap at her feet gripped her cudgel more firmly And prepared to defend her rights the others brandishing their own weapons charged her the remaining women were now but onlookers their hands stayed perhaps by some ancient tribal custom that gauged the number of attackers by the quantity of spoil awarding the right of contest to whoever initiated it when the first woman had been attacked by the second woman the others had all held aloof for it had been the second woman that had advanced first to try conclusions for the possession of tarzan and now the third woman had come with two prizes, and since the first woman and the second woman had stepped out to meet her, the others had held back. As the three women came together it seemed inevitable that the third woman would go down beneath the bludgeons of the others. But she warded both blows with the skill and celerity of a trained fencer, and, stepping quickly into the opening she had made, dealt the first woman a terrific blow upon the head, that stretched her motionless upon the ground where a little pool of blood and brains attested the terrible strength of the wielder of the bludgeon, the while it marked the savage, unmourned passing of the first woman. And now the third woman could devote her undivided attention to the second woman. But the second woman, seeing the fate of her companion, did not wait to discuss the matter further, and instead of remaining to continue the fight, she broke and ran for her cave, while the creature that the third woman had been carrying, along with the carcass of the antelope, apparently believing that it saw a chance for escape while its captor was engaged with her assailants, was crawling stealthily away in the opposite direction. Its attempt might have proved successful, had the fight lasted longer. But the skill and ferocity of the third woman had terminated the whole thing in a matter of seconds. And now, turning about, she espied a portion of her prey seeking to escape, and sprang quickly after it. As she did so, the second woman wheeled and darted back to seize the carcass of the antelope, while the crawling fugitive leaped to its feet and raced swiftly down the trail that led through the mouth of the amphitheatre toward the valley as the thing rose to its feet it became apparent that it was a man or at least a male and evidently of the same species as the woman of this particular race though much shorter and of proportionately lighter build it stood about five feet in height had a few hairs on its upper lip and chin a much lower forehead than the women And its eyes were set closer together. Its legs were much longer and more slender than those of the women, who seemed to have been designed for strength rather than speed, and the result was that it was apparent from the start that the third woman could have no hope of overhauling her escaping quarry. And then it was that the utility of the strange skirt of thongs and pebbles and feathers became apparent. Seizing one of the thongs, she disengaged it easily and quickly from the girdle that supported them about her hips and grasping the end of the thong between a thumb and forefinger she whirled it rapidly in a vertical plane until the feathered pebble at its end was moving with great rapidity then she let go the thong like an arrow the missile sped toward the racing fugitive the pebble a fairly good-sized one as large as an english walnut struck the man upon the back of his head dropping him unconscious to the ground then the third woman turned upon the second woman who by this time had seized the antelope and brandishing her bludgeon bore down upon her the second woman possessing more courage than good sense prepared to defend her stolen flesh and took her stand her bludgeon ready as the third woman bore down upon her a veritable mountain of muscle the second woman met her with threatening cudgel but so terrific was the blow dealt by her mighty adversary that her weapon splintered was swept from her hands, and she found herself at the mercy of the creature she would have robbed. Evidently, she knew how much of mercy she might expect. She did not fall upon her knees in an attitude of supplication, not she. Instead, she tore a handful of the pebble-missiles from her girdle, in a vain attempt to defend herself. Futilist of Futilities! The huge, destroying bludgeon had not even paused, but swinging in a great circle, fell crushingly upon the skull of the second woman. The third woman paused and looked about questioningly, as if to ask, Is there another who wishes to take from me my antelope or my man? If so, let her step forward. But no one accepted the gauge, and presently the woman turned and walked back to the prostrate man. Roughly, she jerked him to his feet and shook him. Consciousness was returning slowly, and he tried to stand. His efforts, however, were a failure— and so she threw him across her shoulder again and walked back to the dead antelope which she flung to the opposite shoulder and continuing her interrupted way to her cave dumped the two unceremoniously to the ground here in the cave mouth she kindled a fire twirling a fire-stick dexterously amidst dry tinder in a bit of hollowed wood and cutting generous strips from the carcass of the antelope ate ravenously while she was thus occupied the man regained consciousness and sitting up, looked about, dazed. Presently his nostrils caught the aroma of the cooking meat, and he pointed at it. The woman handed him the rude stone knife that she had tossed back to the floor of the cave, and motioned toward the meat. The man seized the implement, and was soon broiling a generous cut above the fire. Half burned and half raw as it was, he ate it with seeming relish, and as he ate the woman sat and watched him. He was not much to look at, yet she may have thought him handsome. Unlike the women, who wore no ornaments, the man had bracelets and anklets as well as a necklace of teeth and pebbles, while in his hair, which was wound into a small knot above his forehead, were thrust several wooden skewers, ten or twelve inches long, which protruded in various directions in a horizontal plane. When the man had eaten his fill, the woman rose, and, seizing him by the hair, dragged him into the cave, He scratched and bit at her, trying to escape, but he was no match for his captor. Upon the floor of the amphitheatre, before the entrances to the caves, lay the bodies of the first woman and the second woman, and black upon them swarmed the circling scavengers of the sky. Ska, the vulture, was first always to the feast. End of chapter 2 Recording by Matthew Rees Cordova, Illinois.